welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. Right now, this nation is up to its eyeballs in in-your-face corruption, cover-ups, and all kinds of lying going on at the highest levels of government. As we watch a dangerous fight brewing over who gets to be in the White House next, we're being treated to hideous spectacles announcing just how compromised our democracy really is. We've got the Joe and Hunter Biden spectacle. We've got the ongoing spectacle of the Trump presidency. We've got the pandemic spectacle where we're all supposed to wear masks and socially distance based on dubious statistics and information. And we've got the spectacle of major media platforms engaging in such complete and overt censorship that their leaders were recently dragged before Congress. And there's much more, but I have decided to do this show today because a lot of us may be feeling powerless about right now. So I decided to bring on a guest who was part of an organization that's taking the bull by the horns to address the corruption, lying, and covering up connected to arguably the most traumatic event of this nation's history, 9-11. Full disclosure, I work for this organization as an investigator. The organization calls itself the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. Today, David Meiswinkle, president of the Lawyers Committee, is here to talk about the latest progress the organization has made to address the crimes of 9-11 that were either ignored or improperly investigated. The group has just sent the new evidence they've uncovered pertaining to the 2001 anthrax attacks to Congress as a step towards opening a new, uncorrupted investigation. That's a hopeful thing in these times, isn't it? Meiswinkle is also a U.S. Army veteran, a retired police officer, and a New Jersey criminal attorney. Welcome, David. Uh, thank you very much, Christine. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so, first of all, talk about what the committee has done so far and why um, they decided to tackle the anthrax attacks. Right. Uh, in April of uh, 2018, we uh, developed a petition, uh, and that was a, a grand jury petition, to uh, and submitted it in the Southern District Court in Manhattan. And that had to do with uh, evidence that had never been considered before of explosives and uh, incendiaries, bombs, basically controlled demolition of the uh, Twin Towers. And uh, that uh, was followed up by a lawsuit, which is presently being uh, heard. And we're waiting for a ruling from the judge in the Southern District on that. Uh, after that, we went down to Washington, D.C., and we filed a action against the FBI. And that had to do with the 9-11 Federal Review Commission. And that had to do with, with seven counts and it was based on evidence that the Congress had mandated the FBI to consider uh, that hadn't been really uh, assessed by the original 9-11 Commission. So these were seven various different areas of evidence that included the World Trade Center explosive evidence. It, it included also uh, an episode of uh, people celebrating in New Jersey uh, as they were filming the event and known as the uh, Dancing Israelis or the High Fivers. 
it involved the uh, the loss of that evidence or this possible destruction of that evidence when we made a, a request through a Freedom of Information Act, uh, which seemed to be timed with the time that Congress said that they wanted the FBI to update them on all the evidence they hadn't originally considered. It also was a count four. It had to do with Saudi financing. Count five had to do with the Pentagon photos or, or cameras that no one knew about. And count six had to do with the serial numbers on the airplanes. Every airplane, the major parts have serial numbers. And there's a lot of controversy on what airplanes did what uh, at uh, various crime scenes. So if you had the serial numbers, you'd know uh, uh, right away that, uh, that in Shanksville United 93 crashed there, if that's what the evidence right, would show right. you. And right. same with the Pentagon and American Flight 77, et cetera. And then the last uh, count on that, that seven counts had to do with cell phone communications because there was a lot of problems. Earlier on, there was all these cell phones, supposedly, especially with the regard to the United 93 flight. And then all of a sudden, these uh, phone calls are becoming air phone calls or not even happening. And in particular, too, with the regards to Flight 77, that allegedly hit the Pentagon. There, Barbara Olson made a, a number of calls to her husband. And later on, the FBI told her that the calls or told him <laughs> the calls that he received from her, uh, he didn't receive. So these are all various questions that should have been looked at. But most recently, uh, what we did... Uh, uh, again, we're looking at all the various crime scenes, and we've uh, pledged ourselves to do the investigations into all those areas. One area that hadn't been looked at, uh, but uh, which we did look at, was the anthrax attacks. So back in 2001, a week after 9-11, uh, the, the anthrax attacks in two waves began. And that began with a, a, a letters that were sent out to Tom Brokaw and CBS, NBC, ABC News. Uh, New York Post. And then the second uh, band uh, batch of, of letters went to uh, two U.S. senators. And that was Thomas uh, Daxel and Patrick Leahy. And that's uh, very important because uh, this uh, anthrax was a super killer. And on uh, one gram of this anthrax contained over one trillion spores, if you can think of that, one trillion, one trillion spores of anthrax. So we've now uh, uh, did our investigation, uh, which you are part of, a very important part of, and uh, we had eight people, and all amazing people, uh, and uh, we put together a, a petition that's having 76 pages with 69 exhibits, and some of these exhibits have never been seen before. We've got them from various scientists or doctors in, at USEMRID, which is uh, really actually Fort Detrick, and uh, uh, on October 15th, we basically served the entire Congress with the documents. Uh, we sent the uh, various hard copy of uh, the petition, the big petition with 76 pages. And uh, with regards to an executive summary uh, that was written to sort of like make it more concise for whomever was going to review the petition. And uh, we sent that to all the top congressional people. Uh, starting with the vice president, uh, the president of the Senate, and uh, the Speaker of the House, and the heads of the investigative committees, including uh, Congressman Nadler and U.S. Senator Leahy. And then we also sent a, a copy of the executive summary, a cover letter, and the links to the petition and to the exhibits to every 
every uh, congressperson, 431 uh, congresspeople, representatives in the House, and uh, they all received it. So 535 congressional people, U.S. senators and congressional uh, congress congresspeople, congressmen and women, have now received our information. And uh, we'll be uh, developing this more so that the public knows about it a little bit after the election. So what is the difference between what the FBI concluded and found and what has been what the lawyers committee found and well, has let, put in this petition? That, that's like the difference between night and day. Uh, that's what they have. That's quite an indictment of the FBI. Well, it should. It certainly should be, and uh, they, they've been falling down. On, unfortunately, with reference to 9/11, in all different various areas, but in certainly in this area, uh, there was uh, could have been much better investigation. Now, what did they say happened? Well, what did the FBI, let's go back there. What did the FBI finally say happened? Well, what they finally said happened, maybe uh, what what eventually they were looking at was that, uh, you know, Al Qaeda did the uh, the uh, the attack, and then it was uh, the uh, they needed a nation state to support that supposedly, so they brought in Iraq. And of course, we know that Iraq had no weapons of mass destruction, and we literally destroyed that. And uh, then they had a number of people, a whole litany of various people. There were some uh, people that worked in Levittown for the municipal government. I believe it was Levittown, Pennsylvania. And they lost their jobs if they weren't the guy. Then they went to uh, a a doctor in New York State. And uh, they pressured him and made a circus for him. And he wasn't the guy. And then they moved to a guy named Percy Mike Sell, who worked actually with Battelle and with the USAMRID. What are those? What are what are, what are Battelle and USAMRID? Explain to the audience. So that right. Well, USAMRID is a uh, that's Fort Detrick. That's the United States Military Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, and uh, the Fort Detrick is a biological weapons uh, really uh, place, right? And we we, we associate that with the uh, biological weapons. And they do a lot so, of. So they went from it's Al Qaeda. It's this. All of a sudden, now we're in the U.S. military. Now right. we're in the Defense Department, basically. It, basically, yes. And Battelle does a lot of work with the CIA. They're a private contractor, actually. They're it's like a foundation or nonprofit, actually, which is kind of deceptive. And uh, they work with the FBI. In fact, during this time, they had three different projects, one of the top secret projects having to do with anthrax. But going back to uh, uh, how the Americans got involved here, there was a, a strain called the AIM strain was identified. And that's a military uh, strain that's uh, typical with American anthrax. Uh, the betonite, which would be found in Iraqi anthrax, wasn't there. <laughs> so there was no connection with Iraq through the anthrax. However, that, was, that had already been circulated out there and the public was uh, pretty much, uh, OK, this is part of 9-11. This is part of Al Qaeda attacking us. This is a second. And then all of a sudden, right. um, this this whole this whole investigation takes a left turn right into the Defense Department. Well, it, it does. And, and right into the. Basically, the army, <laughs> military defense was having Fort Detrick is really army, and right. that was one of the, the curious things that happened. 
because uh, Mike said I'd worked for Yosemite at one time. He ends up dying uh, from alcohol poisoning, basically, or something similar to that. Apparently, he had a bad liver, and the FBI pressured him so much he started drinking. The next guy they went after was Stephen Hatfield. He was also a uh, Yosemite scientist, and uh, they they harassed him, and they, they uh, embarrassed him for a couple of years. Uh, they would do their search warrants and, and, and notify the television station. So they were all down there and making a circus for the guy. Finally, he turned the tables on them, made a public uh, press conference and uh, attacked them and went in the courts and won over $5 million in a settlement, which was significant. And then uh, they had to uh, find a new suspect and they had uh, Bruce Ivins, who was a doctor, a scientist who worked with vaccines at Fort Detrick for uh, 28 years or so, or maybe even more, uh, was uh, well-liked by his colleagues. He became the person they were fingering and they applied uh, a lot of pressure on him and they applied pressure on the family, his daughter and his son, his wife, in very confrontational ways. And uh, eventually he had some mental health issues which became uh, vastly greater and uh, there was apparently a suicide attempt in March of 2008. And, but then uh, there was a problem too with a, a counselor he had that uh, it seems to be had been uh, at least talking to or maybe working for the FBI and uh, the confidentiality that would go normally between a patient and his therapist or counselor, or just as it was with an attorney and a client or a doctor and a patient, uh, was uh, basically uh, sabotaged or thrown out the window. And she started uh, working with the FBI, seemed like, and she got a restraining order against him saying he said these things were threatening and uh, was basically her word against him. And, uh, and five days later, after getting that restraining order, he apparently committed suicide. Uh, there was no autopsy performed. He had been taking Tylenol. He was also on three... Uh, antidepressant type uh, medications for other problems he had with this with his mental health issues and uh, uh some people have told us they don't believe he committed suicide and that uh, he was murdered uh shortly after that case is closed the crime was solved history's been uh, locked in and we move on so the fbi did exactly that uh, they said if he had lived, we would have been able to convict him at a trial. Now, what was different here and what's different in New York City, for example, is that ongoing here was a grand jury. They already admitted that there was the crime was having to do with anthrax. Like in New York City, uh, the, uh, the architects and engineers developed a lot of evidence, which we took into court, basically, that bombs were involved. And there was a lot of testimony from firemen that heard explosions in the buildings and others. And uh, that's not part of the official story that bombs were involved. You know, the right. buildings came down because of gasoline and jet fuel and, and a plane hitting it. And of course, they couldn't explain them, uh, Building 7 because that wasn't hit by a jet airplane. It didn't have gasoline from a, from a, from an airplane. Well, fuel, fuel, jet fuel. fuel, which is like kerosene, basically. Right, right. But in, in anthrax, we didn't have to be that sophisticated because it was well established that the even the type of anthrax was there. So what we had to do was to go and see if the FBI did a, a, a good good investigation. 
and what we found out that they didn't. They they obstructed and they uh, basically corrupted the investigation, and they misled Congress and misled the American people. So uh, that's what we we uncovered in, in doing our investigation. Now, when we started off, one of the first people that uh, came before our committee, our anthrax committee, was Rick Lambert. Now, Rick Lambert was the head of the FBI, inspector in charge of the Amerithrax investigation. That's what that investigation was called, uh, of the anthrax, Amerithrax. And he was on it for four years. But they obstructed him so much and it made it difficult. He eventually leaves there and eventually gets out of the FBI, retires, and he eventually becomes basically like sort of a whistleblower. They, They come after him. They retaliate against him because he didn't like the way things were going. And uh, he did a 2000 page summary of, uh, of what he experienced basically. And uh, 16 of those pages he advised us had to do with exculpatory evidence of Bruce Ivins. So he never thought that Bruce Ivins was the, uh, the attacker or the killer along with a lot of other people. We talked to Martin U. Jones. We talked to Barbara Hatch Rosenberg. Who are those people? Who are those people? Well, they're top scientists in the in the country that at that time were very relevant and still are. Uh, but uh, they uh, were very familiar with anthrax, and they had were very familiar with where this type of anthrax could come from. See, there was a difference in the type of anthrax used. Uh, in particular between the first attack and the second attack. And there were some characteristics that could have been followed up by the FBI in both attacks that would have led them outside of USEMRIT, outside of the army facilities, basically, and into the biotech labs and into the intelligence agencies, which is where they should have been going. And they tried to uh, keep it all locked in with this fellow, uh, unfortunately, uh, with Bruce Ivins, and when they and when he died, then the case was solved. But uh, what we've done by doing uh, uh, intensive research for eight months is we found some flaws in uh, their arguments and in their evidence, and uh, and uh, we realized that uh, Bruce Ivins, uh, there was so much exculpatory evidence that there's no way he would have been found guilty at a trial. So what they're saying is they're spinning a, spinning a falsehood there. So, okay, let, let's talk about some of the details of this. I, I mean, it sounds to me like a, a cover-up. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I think in the, uh, in the thing you, <clears throat> in, in the petition, you say the FBI investigation was corrupted and obstructed and that high-level DOD officials ordered um, the USAMRID uh, Fort Detrick commander to squelch investigations by Army scientists and their and to squelch their criticisms of the FBI right, right. investigation. Right. Well, that's important. And, and when we get that, is that's, a, that's a novel uh, document about the squelching. And uh, that's the first time it's being seen by the public is through, through our petition. Uh, that comes from Colonel Anderson, and Colonel Anderson was in charge of the uh, sort of review of uh, all all matters that had to do with ethical concerns. In particular, now they're dealing with vaccines, so they want to make sure that the vaccine trials are done properly and things. Of he that was matter. at USAMRIT. He was at Fort Detrick. He was at Fort Detrick. Okay. And he, and he knew Bruce Ivins <laughs> personally. I mean, talking to him, he knew him for many years, actually since the '80s. Okay. So he. Uh, 
he gave us that memo. It's a memo he wrote at the time. Apparently, the USIMRA scientists were doing their own investigation while the FBI was. And you have to realize that they were really, uh, they were put in a weird situation because they were instructed not to talk with each other and things of that nature because they all became suspects. <laughs> so nobody was sort of trusting anybody. And, uh, you know, they, nobody knew what was, you know, who, who to believe in a sense, but there was a group there and uh, we've met with uh, a number of them and talked to them. And there are four of the scientists, uh, three of them were colonels or two colonels, a lieutenant colonel and a doctor. They're all professional uh, medical people. And uh, they all signed declarations on behalf of Bruce Ivins saying that exactly what our petition is saying actually is that uh, he couldn't have done it. He didn't have the capabilities or the knowledge or actually disposition to do it. He didn't have the motive to do it and the means or the opportunity in it basically. But there was others that did and they weren't investigated by the FBI. Well, the government also in a court filing, right? In, in a court case um, <clears throat> admitted that um, that this anthrax that was so highly um, processed, uh, weaponized, as they called it, <clears throat> uh, could not have been manufactured at USAMRID. Is that correct at Fort Detroit? Right. Well, they were, we're talking out both sides of their mouth. In Florida, uh, when the, the first person that died was Robert Stevenson, who worked for American Media complex which had to do with like the national choir and i think star magazine things of that nature and he accidentally uh was exposed to it and uh and he died on october 5th and that was the first person that died there was five people that died 17 were uh, poisoned and uh and a lot of ramifications developed out of that but uh during that trial the family had against the government the government was saying, well, USEMRA doesn't make that stuff. They couldn't do that, you know, et cetera. So at, at the same time, when they're pleading basically uh, not guilty, that they were innocent party of this uh, up in our area, up, up in the Northeast, uh, they were uh, rallying that uh, Ivan's was basically the killer, that they did do it. <laughs> All right. So one hand was saying they didn't do it. The other hand was saying they did do it. And uh, uh, basically, right now in history, uh, that's the way that's the way it's gone down. They well, spoke out of both their both both sides of their mouth. Well, one of the things that I found really interesting and shocking was Rick Lambert's two thousand page report, which, by the way, um, talk about that report. Uh, he couldn't talk about the contents of it, except the con some of it, some of the contents came out in another court case, uh, in his court case. But I, I'm just interested in having you talk about, first of all, no one is allowed to see <laughs> that report. I mean, yeah. it should have been part of the FBI's once they close everything down, that report should have been made public. Sure. Well, that's one of the interesting things he said. We said, how can we get a hold of that? And he said that you'll have to go to Congress to do that. Probably they can they can subpoena it and have it produced. So, I mean, in part, that's what we're going to do. But what he said during the time he spoke with us, I mean, and we know this from reading his court papers, uh, he was obstructed in so many ways. He was given uh, the uh, so most like rookies that come out of the academy and had no investigative skills. 
And this was, they were bragging, this was the biggest uh, investigation they ever did. And they put guys in it, weren't investigators. Then he had two chemists that he needed and they put those chemists in the schools and send them, I think, to Israel for classes and the things of that nature, which was, was prolonged. So he lost his chemist. Then they moved them out of town uh, in Washington where they were all comfortable. And uh, he allowed the, uh, the attorney general, I think, to move in with a pornography unit in the area that he was at one time doing this, the most uh, highly sensitive case in the history, maybe at least as, as far as they were projected it, how important it was. Uh, so they, they didn't have the importance on it. He had problems communicating with his his subordinates. Uh, he was threatened that if he went and, and reported this, this was a, this came out of the Washington field office down in Washington, that he would, uh, you know, somehow be punished or get in some trouble. Uh, he there was a, a fingerprint that was on an envelope that he wasn't told about and, and, and things that he should have really been on top of. So he felt that in every way it was where it was going, they were told to basically compartmentalize everything. So nobody knew what, what the other guy was doing, which really undermined the investigation and sort of continuity and a connection yep. uh, so people could see the bigger picture. And uh, eventually he, he gets out of that situation and, uh, you know, other people take it over. But by the way, I just want to interrupt for a second. I, I saw that in the, uh, the in the TWA investigation was the same thing. The different the the different um, the different uh, groups that were formed to look at different parts of the investigation were not allowed to talk to each other. And also another similarity in this investigation is that they were to provide their work, but not to provide a final assessment of what that work meant or said. Right. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And, you know, I think it also carried over to 9-11 Commission. I think Zelikow had put an order in that uh, there was not to be that kind of communication so that people were compartmentalized and didn't know what their colleagues were doing. Uh, so that seems to be uh, part and parcel of how they operate during this period of time, unfortunately. Well, uh, it's, it, I mean, I think there's a cover-up manual and that's, <laughs> <laughs> well, I well, do. I mean, I, I, w w one of the reasons why I even contacted you guys was because when I read your first petition, it sounded so similar to the, to the affidavit that Hank Hughes, all this, the same types of shenanigans, different investigation, but the same types of hiding exfoliation of evidence, um, not allowing uh, analyses of, of the information they had collected, the evidence they had collected, all of these similarities. Another one, by the way, is, you know, you bring in somebody new and so, and I'm saying this because I want you to talk about uh, Bob Mueller and what happened with him before the congressional committee and uh, what happened after that. Right. Well, well, Mueller is is the fix it man. It seems that whenever they need someone to cover something up, I mean, he all of a sudden he materializes and the uh, investigation is it seems to be uh, rerouted or covered up. So he had was under uh, uh, questioning from the Congress to uh, produce some evidence as to who uh, other other possibilities besides Ivan's and. Eventually, uh, it was eliminated after many months that it possibly could have been Dugway and Battelle. And uh, but then he said then it, and basically in the memo said that uh, 
if, if they, that they had received this, uh, uh, this 1029, this RMR 1029 can contain these uh, magical morphs or these morphs, which were a variant, a DNA variant. This is RMR 29 is, you have to explain, it's a flask of, of um, yeah. well, anthrax strain. Well, the, the, right. the, the key thing, well, it's, it's the, uh, maybe the uh, smoking gun here supposedly or they like to say the fingerprints were the morphs in this in the smoking gun maybe was the uh, the flask. This is the flask that they claimed that Bruce Ivins controlled, uh, and that was not true at all. He didn't control it. In fact, we found out that probably hundreds of people had access to this flask. Now, in this flask was these uh, this variant of DNA, which was eventually found, and uh, apparently they were trying to say it only came from this flask. What they weren't telling people is that the flask content, 85%, was from Doug Way and uh, that, that filled that flask. The other 15% was from Dr. Ivins. But they didn't tell the FBI, uh, the FBI didn't tell Congress or any the public that the flask that uh, Bruce Ivins used to fill it, the 1030 flask, uh, was analyzed and that didn't contain the morphs. In other words, what, what he contributed, that, that, that flask, 1029, had... It had anthrax from Dugway, mostly from Dugway, and then some from Bruce. And what Bruce contributed to it did not have the fingerprints of the uh, anthrax, right. of so, the attack anthrax. The Dugway contribution had that fingerprint. Right. And then from that, if, if you have two components and one is from Bruce Ivins and that doesn't contain the Morse, and the other is from Dugway, and uh, the, and and there are morphs there. Then you have to assume that that uh, that the morphs came from Dugway. It's the only way. The FBI locks it in until to two possibilities: Bruce or and or Dugway. Now I don't know if they had known all that when, but by the time they locked it in. They might have, maybe not, but certainly they knew it later on. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, well, listen, they, uh, as far as what the, the chemistry was going to show, but uh, because this was sort of a new variation and they, these morphs were not discovered until later on, this investigation took nine years. At the beginning of it, this, this type of analysis wasn't possible, but as it developed, uh, it became possible. So basically they were saying uh, that Dugway and Battelle, now Battelle did test positive for the morphs. There was uh, out of over 1,070 samples, uh, the uh, the United States or FBI would request uh, the basic or subpoena the various agencies to submit, make submissions. But the, the uh, I mean, the common sense aspect is that if you're a guilty party, you're certainly not going to submit. That's what's going to nail you. you know? Now, that's that's another that was another huge problem that I think uh, the petition showed, which was. They talk about putting the the fox in charge of the hen house in terms of getting these samples. Well, yes, they they depended on the people to be honest. So here you have someone that tried to kill two U.S. senators, right, with the most potent anthrax ever seen, and killed five other people. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and injured seventeen and scared the nation, and that they're going to be upright and they're going to give you that which is going to put them in prison for life or maybe right. have them executed. But uh, so that didn't make much sense. 
So the criticism was, hey, you should have went in and seized the stuff. I mean, that's what they did with uh, Hatfield, right? Stephen Hatfield, they go and seize his, and that's what they did to Bruce Ivins. They go to get their search warrant and go in and rip the place apart, take out whatever they need, the computers or anything else, and uh, tough luck. Well, that's what the FBI should have done here. They should have used a little bit more muscle in different areas. They used some muscle, but they didn't use a muscle where it was uh, likely suspects like Dugway and Battelle. Now, as I said, Battelle did turn up. Uh, only Battelle and Yusemarin supposedly had those, those morphs. But there's a lot of questions now. The National Academy of Science had questions about it. The GAO, the Government Accounting Office, had questions about it. Uh, and this was later on after the fact. And uh, there's a good uh, possibility that uh, the FBI wouldn't even be able to use their, uh, you know, anything positive that came from those reports. It's a good uh, possibility that Bruce Ivan's defense attorney, if he ever had to go to trial, could have used those reports actually to rebut anything the FBI was saying. So the FBI, in the long run, the bottom line is they had no signs to prove that Bruce Ivan's was the culprit. And if they used their logic, it would have involved hundreds of people uh, from Yusemarin, from Battelle, and from Dugway. And uh, who, who knows else, where else? Uh, but uh, in other words, uh, it, it, was, it was just a scapegoat. He was, he was a scapegoat. They needed somebody. He was, he was vulnerable. They pressured him and unfortunately ends up dead. Again, it's a question about how and you know, how that happened. Well, I'm remembering I'm remembering Mueller in front of Congress, right? Uh, saying, "Well, first of all, they said they were all they were saying, listen, your uh, this FBI investigation has so many problems. People aren't believing what you're saying. Uh, it, the credibility of this uh, investigation has been really compromised." And you know, they asked him the questions about. How were Dugway and Battelle, who were the primary suspects, how were they eliminated? And he gave a very, um, he gave a, he, like he gave a, a, he gave a convoluted answer. It well, was, he gave a, a, an absurd answer. Well, it was more than absurd. Yeah, it, it was, <laughs> it was totally absurd. And basically what he said is that if they had, uh, he said that they had gotten the material or they were, but then he said at the end, but they hadn't gotten the material. He said that they could be considered as a suspect. Had they, they got the material. And then he goes on, they, they could have been considered as suspects, but they didn't get the material or something to that effect. In other words, he contradicted himself by what he said. It's, I mean, it's the most ludicrous statement I've ever seen from a government agency. And that would have been something else to try and explain. You almost have to think that maybe somebody made a mistake there, but no, they, they couldn't have made a mistake. I think maybe they just were hoping that people uh, wouldn't read it carefully. Well, well, I was surprised, frankly, that that the congressman did not come back and say, oh, oh, oh what? Wait, you know, uh, this doesn't make sense. But well, they, I, they, but they, what? Yeah, well, they may have, in a sense, eventually H.R. Uh, 720. That was the bill by Rush Holt and uh, Congressman Nadler actually to have an investigation that, that Congress would do, which was eventually that was the uh, uh, shelved. Uh, my understanding is that they, they got pressure from the Obama administration not to go forward with that. They but, got pressure from the Obama administration? Well, I, I, had, I had read somewhere where their, their financing or funding was being threatened or something to that effect. Now, I, don't quote me on that. I, I didn't really do a lot of research, and it was just one article I read on it. 
So that had to do with their, their financing. There, there was a desire not to reopen what the FBI had done. All right. Now, now Mueller at that, when he was called before Congress, he said, oh, uh, you know, by the way, yes, the credibility, we're going to have the National Academy of Sciences review the FBI investigation uh, to see if, you know, in, indeed there were problems. Can you can you talk about that and what happened? Yeah, basically what happened was uh, the FBI decided not to wait for the National uh, Academy of Sciences uh, to uh, submit their report and they closed the investigation. And uh, basically what the National Academy of Science had had some serious questions as far as the science goes, that they did not support the findings, that there wasn't this positive, that, uh, you know, they said that the, the lowest uh, realm of proof they gave us was consistent, but they said consistent, maybe there's no connection at all. So, uh, and the GAO was uh, similar that the government accounting office was similar in the saying that the statistics and the analysis and et cetera, it, it, didn't, it didn't necessarily jive. In other well, words- Well, they also said, didn't the National Academy of Sciences say, you know, they didn't have access to all- Well, they all did the say All the investigative, that. all the evidence either. Sure. I mean- well, that's, that's true. Well, that's the way they operate. The uh, FBI is they have these scientists come in and do their work, but they don't show them all the evidence. And so they're again compartmentalized. Part of what the problem with uh, with information that uh, Lambert was talking about earlier on is is that uh, you know things get compartmentalized. So you're 100 percent right. They weren't shown uh, documents they should have been shown. So and uh, there was stuff that had been classified. There was a lot of classified material they didn't have access to. That's, that's 100% and, right. And when they were trying and call some of these people and talk to them, they wouldn't make themselves available. I mean, there was a. It was almost sort of the same thing. The the the, the original investigation was uh, obstructed in all yep. kinds of important ways, and then and then the National Academy of Sciences review you know, which made it look like Mueller really cared about the integrity of the original investigation, but the fact that they shut it down um, and they shut it down before, before, because I, I think frankly, you know, they must've known that the National Academy of Sciences was going to, was going to say, this is not, this is not. Well, well, I think so. Yeah. I think if, if they thought they were going to get a good review, they would have left it open to get a good review. But uh, I think they knew in talking to the scientists, I think the scientists were frustrated and, and they, were, they were just sort of spinning their story and it wasn't scientific. So, uh, I mean, the documents are in our, our, our exhibits. Now, if people go on the website, lc4for91.org, they can access the reports from the GAO and the National Academy of Sciences and uh, they can read them you know, for themselves. But those uh, reports uh, do not in any way prove or show that Bruce Ivins was the anthrax killer in, in no way. Or that there was a sole, only a sole culprit. That that sole culprit thing is is, is the thing well, that really. Well, that's, that's what we think about it. That's, that's, that's typical of, of all the major political, major assassinations, et cetera. The sole culprit for the Kennedy assassination, Lee Harvey Oswald. Bobby Kennedy was Saran Saran, uh, James Earl Ray, Martin Luther King, all right, uh, McVeigh for Oklahoma bombing, 
basically they scored in nuts. I mean, and then Nichols too, they tied him in. But anyway, they, they, they always That's how have, you sort of contain, eventually you just contain it down to that one individual. Yeah. And, and we know that the, the, this, with this, this anthrax was so volatile that the Eusemarin scientists, when they got a hold of the Daxel anthrax and they were examining it in Washington in, in, at their headquarters in Maryland, they contaminated 12 of them, including the, the, the main doctor, Dr. John Essel, who uh, was very experienced. They had never seen anything like it. It's just jumping out of the envelope or it climbs up the, uh, the test tube or if they put it under on a plate to look at it under a microscope, it moves. It, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's energized, it's super energized. And what they did in part there is they removed the electrostatic charges so that normally it, it will, it won't cling at all. It won't, it, so it just dissipates like a gas. So if you also, oh, you, can, you can breathe it in very easily and that's it, you're dead. You, you breathe it in and it, it it's so small. Think of that, a trillion spores in a gram that, I mean, you can breathe that in. Now there's three different types of anthrax. There's, in, there's inhalation anthrax. That's what this was. Uh, but there's also cutaneous anthrax that if you get it on your arm or leg, you get a black lesion. And of course you have to be treated for it, but that, you can be cured for that. And you can be cured for any of them uh, if you get it right away. The uh, antidote. Well, you can't be cured for that for that inhal inhalation, inhalation anthrax. Well, What's that uh, in your lungs? Uh, my, my understanding is you can, but you have to get cured. You have to get the treatment right away. The simple. Well, I don't know what it, what it is now. I mean, you can't wait at all. You need it right away. Maybe it's like getting bit by a cobra. Maybe you know, there's an antidote, but you better get it quick. But uh, then there was also the digestive anthrax, where you can actually eat it. So the, the severity is, of course, inhalation is the worst. The next worst is digestive. And, and then the least harmful, but I believe they will kill you for sure, is the cutaneous, and that's on your skin. Now, what we talked about before was the, uh, the uh, you know, squelching of the investigation. Eusemarid, which is very interesting, uh, at the beginning, uh, when the FBI first got involved, and we were looking at, I think, the uh, Daxel stuff, uh, they, for some reason, Battelle had a sample they were given a sample to analyze and the army had it too. And the army was looking at it and said, Jesus, this is the most powerful stuff we've ever seen. It's 10 times more powerful than the stuff that was used in the sixties. And, uh, and then they had a, a joint meeting with the FBI, Battelle and uh, the Assemblage. And uh, Battelle was saying, ah, this stuff is nothing. Basically it's 10 times le less, uh, it, it, you know, uh, uh, po uh, toxic or dangerous than, than had been said. And the uh, colonel, he was saying, that's because you autoclaved it. You baked it, made it into like puppy hockey, hockey pucks or something like that. So in other words, Battelle actually uh, tampered with the evidence. It seems that they uh, distorted it so it would look like less harmful that anybody could For use this. This meeting, they tampered this, with this, it. Right at the beginning. Oh and it was sort God. of, so you could see that the Yosemite was uh, uh, getting set up here. Because they're looking at it, well, this stuff's really potent. And the other guys are nah, they're playing it down. Well, not necessarily that the Yosemite's getting set up. It's like Battelle's getting off because, well, you know, we don't, Battelle, Battelle now does the hot, fine powder. And that's what we what we found out. The magical morphs or the, the four morphs were really a diversion. The, the important thing was B. subtilis. Uh, and the B. subtilis was associated mostly with Dugway. And what that is, is a, it's a simulant. Yeah, when they do their experiments, of course, uh, and just to say they're going to see if a tank is anthrax proof or something like that, 
they're not going to use anthrax, the real thing. They will use a form of anthrax, which is not toxic. And that's where the B. subtilis comes in. It's a, it's a simulant. So, but that so was it simulates the anthrax, but it, it, it's not exactly. Deadly. It's a yeah. pretender, but it doesn't give you the uh, right. You're going to get sick or die from it. Right. So they have at Dugway these giant fermenter, and uh, in fact, when they uh, sent the 85 percent of the uh, flax at 1029 that Bruce Ivins had, a, a number of the batches had to be uh, discon not discontinued, but they had to scrap them because they had too much B. subtilis in it, because they experiment with it all the time. The B. subtilis is common with Dugway. So that was like, whoa, but nobody talks about the B. subtilis. They don't. But then what was common to uh, to Battelle, now Battelle and Dugway work together. There's a joint, uh, Battelle has like sort of offices at Dugway, and that's in Utah. And uh, Battelle is in Ohio. So uh, what, what was interesting is that the... Uh, the 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 uh, Battelle uh, anthrax also had as a silicone, and the silicone is used in a micro encapsulation. And what was really significant here is because at first there was studies saying that well this silicone is is natural or it's you know in the environment, but Lawrence Livermore did studies and said no no it does you can't get it to that level. In the first letters in New York City, the uh, silicone was like ten percent. I believe 10, I think it was 10, uh, 10% or, or maybe, no, I'm sorry, everything was, that was in a, the first letter, I think it was a Daxels. I think it was 10%. Eventually the silicon with Leahy is like at one to 2%. But the, the significance is, and is that the silicon in the Leahy letter is embedded in the, in the anthrax. It's, it's, it's a certain kind of process. Now you have to think that the silicon is almost like, I kind of imagine it, like this is all nanoparticles. Think of like glass beads, all these little glass beads, like the silicon is used for glass, basically. And and that so there's no like nothing holding them together. So there are all these little like the, like little beads, like and eventually, you know, they this goes right up when when you open up an envelope or something like that. So uh, so they had the uh, at Battelle, they had the silicon, they had the micro encapsulation, they had the dry powder. The dry powder is what was in the envelopes. Now at Yosemite, they don't have the capabilities to do that. They don't have all that B subtilis, first of all, that comes from Dugway, and they didn't have dry powdered. They they concentrated on liquid anthrax. So what they utilized was was liquid all the time. And uh, in order to do the dry powder, you need special equipment. You need big fermenters, and uh, and it would take like a team to put it together. According to Martin Hugh uh, Jones, now Martin Hugh Jones is a top expert. In anthrax, and that's basically what he's told us. So uh, naturally, that's where you'd want to look at. And as I mentioned before, during that period of time, there was three projects that uh, Battelle was working with the CIA on that involved anthrax. They're all top secret, supposedly. And uh, you know, it's a good, you know, a good possibility that uh, maybe they were they were involved, or at least uh, the agencies that they were connected to. But it was another. Ah, that is so. It's just so well, here's, mind here's, here's blowing a, here's, to think about this. Here's another conflict that they had. The FBI let them do work to try and figure out who was responsible, and what the Battelle's expertise was to their their responsibility was to look at the and study the B. subtilis, which is interesting because that would have led to Dugway, and Dugway's uh, responsibility was to look at the aerials, or aerialization. Or the aerosolization of the 
and which would so have them looking at yes, they would have had them looking at at Patel. All right, so they were looking at each other. And uh, man, I don't know if we've ever got reports about what the findings were, but I'm sure the findings are that uh, <laughs> neither of them were involved uh, in any way. But uh, so that that's that's the direction that this should have been going. In other words, they nailed the guy that couldn't produce it, didn't have the equipment to do uh, produce it, didn't have any reason to produce it, and that was well liked by his colleagues. In fact, when he died, there was uh, hundreds of people at the church. Uh, you know, crying because they, they, they liked the guy. Uh, and uh, then the history books were closed. So what we've done now, the lawyers committee is, uh, and it, again, this is only the first part of what we want to do. We are preparing a grand jury petition uh, to submit also, uh, and it'll document the various laws that were violated, the penalties associated with that, and uh, cover, you know, the, well, the crimes uh, more so. And that will be uh, submitted uh, to the U.S. attorney, but we'll be asking, it'll be a little twist on it because of the conflicts of interest with the Department of Justice uh, and with the FBI, we're gonna be asking for a special counsel in that matter. In reference to uh, Congress, what we've asked them is to basically uh, open up an investigation, which they were gonna do similar to 9-11 investigation, I guess with representatives from both parties being involved. So uh, again, we haven't gotten that far yet with the grand jury petition, although it's well on its way. And we think that you know, within a, a few months, it'll be all ready to, to, to give to uh, the US attorney. What are the most egregious laws that have been broken that you talk about in this petition? Well, of course, uh, you talk about murder or homicide, that's what you're talking about. But here in this, it becomes uh, more, uh, a higher pitched uh, at a higher level when you talk about domestic people uh, trying to attack U.S. senators. You're talking about treason. Uh, you know, you're talking about um, very heavy duty betrayal of the country. Uh, if you recall, at that time, uh, both tax, uh, uh, Dashiell and Leahy, it may not be accidental that they were targeted. Uh, they were holding up in some ways they wanted to, to possibly do amendments to the Patriot Bill, Patriot Act, uh, which was before Congress at the time. And, and Leahy has a Patriot Act. And as we know, the Patriot Act is, is, is pretty uh, reactionary and uh, just opened up the uh, undermining of civil liberties in the country. And uh, they were stolen out, not stolen out. They were trying to be a little think a little more thorough and, and, and not rushing it through too quickly. And uh, October 5th was the daylight Cheney gave. October 9th, the letters went out to Cheney, to uh, Daxel and Leahy. Now, Daxel got his letter on October 15th. It was opened in his office. Uh, Leahy never got the letter because it was uh, lost in the mail. And eventually, you know, things had come together and they, they knew there was anthrax problems. So when the Leahy letter uh, was produced, uh, it wasn't opened. You know, they, they were alerted to it. But the Daxel wasn't. Uh, the lady that opened up was contaminated with with uh, the anthrax. Uh, but, but I think she got immediate assistance because they had known about the the anthrax through uh, Stevens dying October fifth. So it, it, some people think that it was uh, a direct attack on uh, the Congress by uh, well, at least it, you know it should sort of be uh, certainly the attempted assassination of two U.S. senators. Yeah, and it seemed to be timed then, too, with the Patriot Act. Now, we know that there was a war on terror was being declared at that time, 
and then eventually uh, Iraq was attacked and uh, Afghanistan was already under attack. So there was a lot at stake here that was happening and uh, anthrax seemed to propel it even further. It created a, uh, a paranoia in, in the public in part. And uh, so there was uh, it was a ripe uh, ground for this uh, legislation to go through because people were so scared and the Congress wasn't uh, questioning it. And, and, and that seems to be typical lots of times during these type of things that uh, the, the bills that are being put through aren't really reviewed properly. And, and uh, there's so much excitement around it or drama. And then later on, there's a, a regret because we didn't have time to really look at what we were signing away. So the other, it seems like um, the other result of the anthrax attacks <clears throat> and also because, you know, the investigation was not thorough, um, is, was an expansion of the bioweapons industry. Well, that's, that's right. And that's, uh, you know, Francis Boyle, he's, he's become a friend of the Lawyers Committee. Uh, we had an event on... Talk uh, about Francis Boyle. Tell, tell people who he right. is. Francis Boyle is a, a, an attorney, but he's not just any attorney. He, he drafted the uh, Bioweapons Treaty, the World Treaty on, on Biological Warfare, basically, and that uh, you weren't allowed to uh, create an offensive weapon. It's internationally illegal to do that. That was one of the concerns at that time, that, uh, and one of the reasons why maybe it was... Uh, you know, I'm going to say being covered up, but it was illegal to have this type of anthrax and somebody had created it. And obviously it was used as an offensive weapon because uh, all these people were being attacked, including the two U.S. senators. Uh, so you can have anthrax for defensive purposes, but it's a really fine line because you would make the anthrax and then you would have to try and cure the anthrax. So, so, so you would, you would, uh, you, you get a lot of be creative and make some really advanced anthrax. Now, during that period of time, according to a book that came out uh, uh, that William Broad was in part involved with, and uh, and Judith Miller called Germs, it documented uh, some of the programs that Russia had illegally at that time, which was very kind of sophisticated in regards to smallpox, and and uh, other pathogens. But what happened after this is it became a proliferation of biotech firms starting up and playing around with DNA and all this stuff and with the, these viruses and, uh, and uh, there's no regulation on it. See, one of the reasons why President Nixon back in the 60s, uh, they declared actually the anthrax to, to take it, not to use it. Uh, he prohibited that. They were supposed to close shop on that United States military. And because they figure we have an arsenal, nuclear arsenal that'll protect us. And we don't want these little third world countries getting a hold of this stuff because this will put them on equal footing with, with everyone else, which is another bioweapon of a different sort. And it's a poor man's bioweapon. If you can produce it in a laboratory without a lot of cost and expense and then have a way to distribute it, I mean, you become a player in the world as far as being able to you know, carry things out that maybe you shouldn't be able to carry out. So uh, the United States supposedly wasn't making that, uh, but uh, maybe other countries were, including Russia, at that you know up to that time. But that those three programs, however, uh, if I can remember them, one was called Bacchus, and uh, one was called Jefferson, and one was called Clearview, and these were CIA programs with Patel, all top secret, 
and uh, you know had to do with anthrax. And so, uh, with reference to uh, Francis Boyle, he attended a uh, a conference that we had, the lawyers committee had. He was on there with uh, Ray McGovern and Bill Benny and and uh, Commissioner Joya and Merle Strap and uh, Graham McQueen and uh, and the lawyers committee attorneys Barbara Honecker, and uh, basically he was concerned about this proliferation of bioweapons. In fact, he even said that the uh, present COVID situation was a bioweapon. So, uh, you know, wow. That's, that's I was going to I was going to ask you, is there a connection somehow, you know, because well, okay. it sort of makes you paranoid to think that your own government, you know, your military is is involved in something like the anthrax attacks. And then, you know, it's you know, the, the investigation is a sham and now yeah. you've got this. Well, you know what I, what I've learned in it's something you don't want to learn, unfortunately, and being, having been a police officer for many years, uh, is sometimes, and having studied the, the various assassinations like the Kennedys and Martin Luther King, etc., is that you seldom are getting to the truth and always question the government. And uh, and the government could be the suspect or at least consider it. Don't pass it off like they don't exist, like they're the good guys and they're going to solve the crime because it may be that somehow they're involved with it. Now, you never throw a blanket over every all the organizations because most of the guys, the people, men and women that serve in there are, are honorable people. But unfortunately, because of political agendas, uh, there are politics in all organizations and those lots of times at the top carry out an agenda which the, uh, the, the, uh, the rank and file would never agree with. And because of compartmentalization, they don't even realize the role that they're playing necessarily in it. Yes. So in reference to anything that happens, that especially something as dramatic as, for, first of all, 9-11, and then something as dramatic as the Kennedy assassination in our time. This and now be, COVID, yeah. It, this is it. This is the third, at least in my lifetime, maybe, these are historically steering events. They yes. they re, redirect man's destiny. And uh, if Kennedy had lived, there would have been no Vietnam War. I mean, I saw the memos. He was going to bring the first thousand troops home before Christmas. That He said, I'd bring them all home. There was only 16,000 advisors, uh, Mary, uh, soldiers or advisors at that time. They weren't combat. The CIA was in there mucking things up, but Kennedy wanted to pull out. So that rearranged it. Everything he dies and Johnson's in there, five hundred fifty thousand military. All of a sudden, now nine eleven, the same thing. It re redirected history. It put us in the Middle East over there, and and it uh, it put us in a way that we were, you know, just uh, sort of uh, our our peripheral vision was gone. We had tunnel vision, and uh, you know, made us the emperor. I suppose the world in a sense. And that's what people that wanted to do that in the uh, project for new American century, they wanted an empire and we were the su superpower now, you know, and so we should go out and do it. Now this coming along uh, the COVID again, now the lawyers committee is not taking a position on this, but although uh, our board is interested in knowing that the facts are, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll, 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 we'll look at it closer, but uh, certainly it, this is a game changer. Uh, some people would analyze it and say that uh, the the attack it goes back a long way. Again, <laughs> this is not the lawyers' committee saying it; it's David Meisner saying it. But if you look at the agendas of 
make the Council of Foreign Relations, the Bilderberg Group, the Trilateral Commission, different roundtable organizations. Club of Rome, you'll find that there has always been, throughout the 19th, 20th century, this desire for a, a one world order, a new world order. Right. And, well, uh, I think, yeah, I think we're, you know, I think, I think we're slouching in that direction. Maybe not even slouching, but anyway, we've, we've run up against the clock. And um, I want to thank you for, for coming on. I, I think that this is absolutely critical, the work that, that's being done here. And I look forward to, you know, letting people know about new and positive developments on behalf of Well, listen, uh, thanks for inviting me on. And I, I'll come on anytime, you, you know, you need a, a little update. Great. I'd ask your audience if they could help us. Uh, the best way they could help us is... Uh, through contributions at lc4for911.org. And that'll allow us to continue these investigations. And we have other plans, which we didn't talk about, as far as other petitions and uh, FOIA campaigns and things of that nature. So we're we're leaning into it, but we need a little help. Thanks a lot, Christina. All and right, we'll, take thanks care. Thanks for everything you. you do. Okay, marvelous. Thank you.